Some people who were heavily criticized or bullied when they were small create a coping mechanism of suppressing themselves. And the idea is, if you can stay off the radar screen of the person who tyrannizes you, you don't challenge them, don't try hard to accomplish anything, don't attract attention, don't admit mistakes, you'll be safe. And maybe that was true in childhood, but if this goes on into adulthood, it can turn into a really hard pattern of avoidance. Avoidance of connection with people, of accomplishment, of meeting your own material needs, and of pursuing a life that makes you happy. Hey, it's Anna here, just taking a little pause to talk about getting help when you're having a rough time. There are a lot of things you can try, and one of them is online therapy through BetterHelp. BetterHelp's mission is to make therapy more affordable and more accessible, and those are very good things, because finding a therapist can be really hard. BetterHelp makes it easy to sign up and get matched with a therapist who meets your criteria. And when you click the special link that I'm gonna give you, it not only helps this podcast, but it gets you 10% off your first month of therapy. So you can connect with a therapist, see what happens, and if anything feels like it's not a fit, which is common in therapy, you can easily switch to a new therapist at no additional cost. No stress about insurance or who's in your network or anything like that. So if you're struggling and you need to talk to a human, try BetterHelp. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash C-C-F. CCF stands for Crappy Childhood Fairy. That's betterhelp.com slash CCF. There's also a link in the episode description if you need it. That might be easier. Thanks for sponsoring us, BetterHelp. Now, back to the show. Now, avoidance makes your life small and lonely. It can make it feel like some force outside yourself is making it impossible to change. And believing this can make people not only feel helpless, but sour and angry. Do you know people like this? That defensive anger is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. They're so sure that they won't be understood or accepted, they kind of lead with criticism and blame. We all have this a little bit. Hiding, you know, criticizing, blaming other people as a way to keep our fears at bay, that we don't belong, that we're not good enough, that no one likes us. And that resentful martyr energy really does push people away. Despite anything else that might be good about you, it can ruin relationships and the possibilities of your life. So it's good to notice it, to take stock from time to time and see if unconsciously you're actually blocking yourself from the life you want. So I've made a list of more than 40 signs that you might be acting out on an old, unhealthy pattern of keeping your life small that's sabotaging you being happy. So let's start with material self-suppression because that's what I'm calling it, suppressing yourself. Number one, you confuse living simply with actually what self-neglect. Maybe expressing resentment at people who have decent things, you know, an okay house, clean clothes, good healthy food, and imagining that not having these things puts you on a higher moral plane, like you're just not so materialist or something. Number two, your living space is cluttered and dirty. 
Yeah, <laughs> that is a way to self-suppress. When, when your space isn't clear, you don't have space to invite people, to dream, to have orderly thoughts. Uh, for people with CPTSD, having clutter in your space can increase dysregulation. Number three is you don't exercise, even though we all know what a strong medicine it is for depression, for dysregulation, for anxiety, for your health in general. Not exercising is a way of suppressing yourself because if you did, you would begin to bloom. That's what happens. Number four, you go to bed day after day feeling guilty about what you ate that day. So what that points to is that you have a chronic pattern of eating in a way that you don't want to eat. And you know, a lot of people do this. I do it sometimes, but it's this terrible feeling going to bed at night and thinking only about what I ate and beating myself up over it is definitely making myself small. The best thoughts I can have are clear, free, happy thoughts that empower me to eat the way that I intend to eat the next day. Number five, you're waiting until you're a different weight before you buy decent clothes. <laughs> Do you have that? Do you have like multiple sizes all over the closet and in the drawers? And then you don't have anything nice because any day now you're gonna change the way you eat and not feel guilty at night, that whole thing. That is self-suppression. You can go ahead and have decent clothes at the weight you are right now. Um, number six, your car is full of litter. If you drive a car and it's full of litter, this is um, kind of like the equivalent of having a messy house. And it communicates to other people that you maybe don't have your, your thoughts in order. And I bet you're avoiding giving people rides places. Free up your life, clean out your car, make it decent, wipe down the dashboard. Number seven, your desk is cluttered. Same thing as the car or the house, but your desk is where you sit down. If, if you're like me, I work at a desk and I intentionally have a desk that's really smaller than I would like it to be because if you give me extra feet at the end of the desk, I'll pile it up with papers. I've always got like a ton of papers and a lot of stuff going on. And every morning I get up, I make my bed and then I tidy up my desk. And I guess I could do it the night before, but I'm too tired at that point. <laughs> I get up in the morning and I tidy my desk and I have these shelves where I put things like, this is something I'm not dealing with today, but I'm dealing with it tomorrow. And I have these really cool like colored plastic pocket folders that I put them in and by project and they're see-through so I can see what they are. So that way I can have, you know, 20 projects going, but not on my desk. Number eight, you don't buy yourself clothes that look good on you. That part of that goes back to what I said about like, you know, feeling like, oh, there's this future weight that you're going to have. You will look a certain way in the future and then you can have the clothes. But actually you deserve to buy clothes that look good on you right now. And I know hardly anybody has money for all the clothes they would ever want. But even if you go to thrift shops, I love thrift shops. You get to pick out the clothes that look good on you. Uh, number nine, <laughs> your bras and underwear are tattered, stained, frayed, falling apart. This is a way that you communicate to yourself that you're not worth it. And again, I know they cost money, but you can go to someplace like Target and it's really not that much to have decent, proper, newish underwear and bras. And what about another form of self-suppression, romantic self-suppression? This is another way that you might be playing small, all right? Um, there's someone in your life who mistreats you and you've said nothing because conflict for you is unbearable. At a certain point in your healing, you're going to need to say something. And yes, the whole thing could fall apart if you're honest. But I always say, 
If being truthful causes a relationship to fall apart, it was never real in the first place. All right, the next one, you love someone in, in your life, but you don't tell them. Now, I realize that a lot of people watching this channel, it might be limerence, you can't tell them because it will freak them out because you, you either know flat out or you suspect that if they knew how strong your feelings were, they would avoid you. They would you know, put up a boundary and not wanna deal with you. That's possible. But you know what? Even if that happened, mightn't it not be for the best? Now, if that other person has a partner, I would say don't say anything clear on out. But sometimes expressing how you really feel is a good way to like, let the chips fall where they may. Let your life move forward. Let the story go where it's trying to go. Either the whole thing falls apart because of who you are, or who knows, maybe it's meant to be and you come together. But when you hide how you feel about things, you prevent the story, you get it stuck in mud. And that is an empty mud. Nothing good happens there where you're not honest about where you're coming from. All right, the next one, the person you love doesn't love you back, but you hang out with them. That is a way to play small. That is a way to take all your potential to be in love, to be loved back, and take it and just invest it in this, this black hole where nothing comes back out. Okay, here's one. You date someone for years, but you don't commit. Maybe they want you to commit, but you can't. You kind of want to keep it in limbo forever. Now, is limbo really the best for anybody here? If the relationship is not good enough to commit, maybe is it right to let it go and open up your life to something new that is really fabulous that you really do want? Something to ask yourself. All right, another one. You have a partner who loves you but you're not faithful to them. You've got something going on in secret. You can't be straight with them about how you really feel. You're tying up all their emotional energy so that you can, I don't know, have a safe haven to go to. That keeps your life small. No good thing comes to people who are dishonest like that. All right, similarly, you're in a relationship you know can't last, but you don't leave. Another way to tie up all your emotional energy and make sure nothing wonderful happens. And finally, on the relationship front, this is a way to keep your life small. You really want a relationship, but you don't do anything about it, right? This is really common for people with CPTSD, like trying to meet somebody, putting yourself out there is very triggering. Creates the possibility that you'll get rejected, that you'll feel terrible, that you'll go through abandonment melange. Abandonment melange is a very painful emotional state that can happen to people who were abandoned as kids. That's this very intense combination of grief and anxiety and rage. And it comes down upon you and feels like your life is over because somebody doesn't like you. But when you have a name for that phenomenon, you can handle that phenomenon. It's abandonment melange. And it, it's just, it's a, it's a emotional wave that comes over people who have that history of abandonment, but guess what? Then it passes right on by when you know what it is. You can afford to put yourself out there. You can afford to express that you like somebody and they don't like you back. But to do that, it's really important to be able to strengthen your ability to handle big emotions. I'm gonna talk about that at the end. All right, here's another one. You wish you had friends, but you say publicly that people are terrible these days and you insist they're not worth the trouble. I see, a, I see so much of this in the, in the YouTube comments and I think a lot of these, I'm actually responding to things I, I see in the YouTube comments. A lot of pessimism, you know, just pessimism about people. People suck, men suck, women suck, all women want is money, all men want is sex, all this, 
This is trauma-driven thinking. And if I just encourage you, do not commit to these thoughts. Have an open mind. Obviously, there are great people out there. And obviously, love does occur. If you want to have friends, if you hope to ever meet a partner, then the cynicism needs to be addressed and healed. It needs to get out of the way so that you can have an open enough mind to go out there and have some adventures, take some risks. All right, here's one. You never have people over. Maybe you go to their house sometimes, but you never have people over. That's a sign you're playing small. Um, one is you complain and gossip about a friend, but you don't talk to the friend about what's bothering you. So that's a way that you vent without actually solving the rift in the relationship that's keeping you not only like disconnected from them, but causing harm to their reputation. All right. You know, it's your friend's birthday, but you don't send a note. And here's the thing about Facebook is, um, if you're on Facebook, you can know people's birthdays and it'll come up every day that it's happening. And I sometimes talk about this man, uh, my friend, when I was growing up, she died when we were 26 and I stayed friends with her mother and her mother, one of her big regrets is that she stayed with my friend's father for so many years. And after he died, when she was 80, she got together with a longtime friend <laughs> who was also widowed and they had the most wonderful romance of their lives. And the guy, his name was Dick, and he said he what he did was he kept a Rolodex because that's what people their age do <laughs> is keep a Rolodex. And he kept track of everybody's birthday. He kept track of the big events, like if they had been in the hospital or they had a child or maybe um, a loved one died. And he kept track of all that. And every day he'd go on his date, his date Rolodex and he'd see who do I need to reach out to. And he'd call them or send an email or a card. What a lovely guy. And you know what? He had oodles of friends. He had a lot of joy, a big warm heart. And really, no matter what you've been through, you can be like him. So my friend who married him as her second marriage, she said that her 80s were absolutely the happiest decade of her life. And she only wishes that she had found him before. And she, it, it really opened her heart to be around somebody who was so loving to people in general. He was a nice guy. I got to meet him too. Okay, here's one. You're walking down the street. There's not a lot of people around. You pass somebody and you look down. Do you do that? That is a small thing to do. It is so much more joyful and it makes life better for you and for the person you pass to just say hello, give them a little nod. You don't have to get into a big conversation about it because I know that's what you're worried about. Um, the next one, before you leave your house, you look around out the window to make sure that no neighbors around, because also you don't want to talk to them. And I know, I know, uh, I have some neighbors who are very, very talkative. And the minute you, you know, let them in, you give them an inch and just say, Hey, how's it going? Oh yeah, it was raining. <laughs> you know, this whole conversation erupts. So this is about having boundaries. If you don't want to have a deep conversation, when you say hello to people, you practice your exit lines. You go, I'm so glad to see you. I have to go right now but take care. See you next time. And you say that and you make your exit. And now it's safe for you to say hello to the neighbors. You, you might be making a tremendous difference in their lives just by connecting with them. And I know it's good for you. All right, here's one. You have people you love, but you don't call them, right? Same sort of principle. Or when your phone rings and it's someone you know, you don't answer. Ah, it would be a big conversation. I can't deal with it. If you have boundaries, you can call your friends and you can pick up the phones when they call. Here's one. When a dog comes over and wags its tail, 
pet the dog. <laughs> Don't ignore it. Ignoring the dog, ignoring love when it just shows up like a little loving creature shows up in your path. Take the love. Just give them a little pat on the head and say hello. Okay, here's another category of self-suppression. You don't participate when participation is called for. For example, right, when you join a group, it gets uncomfortable for you. And not only do you leave, but then you tell everybody how crappy the group is and criticize them. Have you done that? Like burning your bridges on those people. If you really don't feel right in a group or in a friendship, it's okay to leave. It's okay to set boundaries and go, but whenever possible, don't burn your bridges. Don't, don't talk bad about those people. I mean, basically don't talk bad about anyone. It's just not a good idea. It's not necessary. You know that old rule, is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Before you say something about people. All right, when you go to a potluck dinner, you bring something cheap or you bring nothing, right? And then you don't lend a hand with cleanup. That's a way that you don't participate. Talk about not participating. As a person who hosts a lot of potlucks, um, I, I know exactly who it is who brings like a protein, who brings a salad, and who brings a six pack of cheap soda and dumps it on the table, you know? <laughs> I don't mind, I tell everybody, you don't have to bring anything, but I love the people who participate and the people who, you know, bring something that's nice to eat and the people who help me clean up will always get invited back again. Um, all right, here's another one. You go to 12-step meetings, but you don't work the steps. A lot of people do that. 12-step meetings, any particular meeting you go to is really only as good as the proportion of people who have some recovery there, and recovery comes through working the steps. And, um, you know, this is just a little talk about 12-step life, um, and I know you're watching this. It might not be your thing, but it applies to a lot of situations you go to. I've been to meetings where almost nobody was working the program. They were just going there talking about how terrible everything is in their life. And you know what? It's depressing. It's depressing. There's room for new people to talk about what's bothering them when there's a lot of other people who are talking about the solution. So if you're trying to recover, but all you're doing is going in and saying how terrible everything is, I have news for you. Saying how terrible everything is, is not really going to solve anything. We all have to like recognize it at some point that maybe things aren't going well and maybe you tell somebody because you're asking for help, like in a group or to a therapist or a friend or a sponsor. But talking about your problems and how unhappy you are at a certain point makes you more unhappy. And not only that, it brings down other people. And you would be wise if you do want to feel happier. Go to where people are talking about their solutions, how they made things better. Listen to them. Match them. Start using your time, for example, in a 12-step meeting when it's your turn to share. Say what the problem is, but then talk about the tools you use to make it better. Talk about the solution. There's people in the room who need to hear it. Even people who have been there longer than you, they need to hear that. They need to hear, what do I do? But what do I do? But what, what helps? Talk about what helps. I know you know you've done things that help. And every day, if you're working on healing, and this is true also like in my membership program, if people are working my program of healing, they're going to have little victories. And those little victories are medicine for everybody in the community. You can do that in the comments in YouTube too. Share your successes. All right, there's this other form of self-suppression around accomplishment. And, you know, you might think it keeps you safe from criticism and rejection, but it doesn't work. So here's how you can tell if you're, you know, suppressing yourself around accomplishment. You have stories that you tell to prove to other people how unfair life is, that you tried, 
but the world wouldn't let you succeed. And I'm telling you this because this is a huge go-to that I used to have. I just would feel really discouraged. It was um, building up because I, I have a daily practice technique now that I use to get my fearful and resentful thoughts out. And there's a lot of times in my life where I felt like the, you know, the deck was stacked against me, my boss, um, my former partners, uh, friends. I felt like they wanted me to fail. They were undermining me. They were um, trying to make things harder for me. And I would talk about it to a lot of people. And then, you know, I would come to my senses and go, what have I done? Now I've made everybody like hate this person. Or <laughs> I'm looking like somebody who, who's got these terrible problems and I'm, I'm actually not going to do anything about them because actually what was going on is I was having a lot of fear and resentment. I haven't actually made a decision to leave. But what I teach when I'm teaching people how to recover from trauma is to take back their sovereignty. That means not only do other people dictate how you heal or what you need, but it means you've got to take responsibility if something's really terrible for you, that it's, that it's for you to change, that other people, like there is no like knight in shining armor who's going to come along and like save you from your job or save you from your terrible group of friends. That if it's really so bad, instead of talking to people about it or complaining, it's time to make a change. And I know change is hard. I know. All right, here's another one. You hate your job and you want to be promoted, but you can't because you don't have the skills and yet you don't go learn the skills. This is really, really common. Um, it surprised me. I didn't learn this till I was in my 40s. <laughs> How much mobility was there for me if I would actually do that. I used to really externalize responsibility for me getting anywhere at work. And I was always very unhappy about it. And I would say that I was, I tended to be underemployed and underutilized. I, I think I had a lot of potential when I was younger, but because of the drama from the, you know, problems in my life and the trauma, and then my own, my own self-suppression, instead of like asking for a raise, I would just be resentful for two years that I didn't get one, you know? And there's a lot of power in asking for a raise. If they don't give you one, you can still stay and you've lost nothing. Or you can take that as information and you can go do something else. And I know there's going to be a ton of people in the comments going, ah, oh, blah, blah, capitalism. And you know what? That's just more self-suppression. Like it, you really are literally not in a position to change the economic system where you live. You are in a position to change to change your actions, to move yourself somewhere where you might better like to be. And I thought that I couldn't raise my income for years. I, I really felt suppressed by this. And then I had a kid and the kid's dad left me and, and I had to raise my income. And so many single parents have been in this situation. And I, I had to think real quick about how I was going to do that. And it turned out that once it was absolutely necessary, I did what was necessary. I made huge changes in my life and I, I, I learned some skills. I changed my appearance. I started showing up on time. I started showing up with an attitude that would help me earn more money. And it was, you know, I, I just laid it on the line and then I asked for the raise. My boss complained, but I got the raise. You know, that's what happened. So I, I just am urging you, don't predict that the world is unfair. That's what I'm talking about, that sort of projection. Like, I never get what I want. It's always unfair. 
A lot of things are unfair. You haven't gotten a lot of things, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't just take the logical action to move toward what you want. And that's what this video is about, is about ways you block yourself from getting what you want. Cynicism, pessimism, giving up, blaming other people, all that stuff, like we all do it a little bit, but at a certain point, it's important to shift gears and figure out like, what can I change here? Because it's not gonna change unless I change it. One thing that I can guarantee is gonna, gonna hobble your ability to make a positive change in your life is if you're looking at screens during every free hour, looking at your phone, looking at your computer, looking at streaming, whatever it is, games, the time doing that is time taken away from your potential to make a positive shift in your life. Screens are nice for relaxation. They're necessary for work for a lot of us, but they should not fill up all your hours. Personal development. Okay, personal development could be happening on screens. You're on a screen right now to watch this video. It's important to use your time well to move your life forward into how you want it to change. All right. Um, here's one. The knowledge you need is available for free online, but you don't spend time to learn it. So many of you have heard the story, but when the, in 2008, 2009, when the market crashed and I was a consultant at the time and everybody who used to hire me got laid off their jobs and therefore I didn't have a job, <laughs> I trained myself how to make video and I had learned it long ago before it was digital. I didn't really know how to edit video in the digital world. And so I Googled it. I Googled it. I started a video company and I taught myself to edit. And I hired somebody to do the camera work and together we cobbled together a little company that ended up grew, growing into many people that flourished until uh, Crappy Childhood Fairy took off and I let that business go and handed it off to one of my colleagues and now I do this. But my, my experience editing video has always been such a feather in my cap. I have, you know, you'll never be sorry you know how to edit a video, especially if you do what I do. All right, here's one. You live buried in debt and because of the debt, you can't make changes. So a friend of mine said this to me in my 20s and said, I think I know why people go into debt. They do it so that they, you know, they don't have any choices. And I thought that's preposterous. You know, it's, I was in debt at the time. I was in debt because I couldn't pay it off. But the thing is, back in my day, they didn't give you a credit card the minute you were born. I think I was like, 29 or something when I finally got a credit card and I lived all that time. I had some student debt, I paid it off. I got this credit card with a $400 limit and then it was always at a $400 limit. Like I made this mental adjustment. And so always in my mind, it's like, well, I'd really like to take this trip, but I can't till I pay off my credit card. And it's kind of like what I said about clothes. I'd really like to have decent clothes, but I can't until I lose 20 pounds. It's the same thing. It's like putting into the future. It's taking yourself and distancing yourself from the future. So either, you know, whether it's clothes or debt, either you accept things the way they are and go ahead and be happy anyway, or you solve the problem so that you can follow through on this plan you have to pay off the debt and then take the trip. But holding that debt right there, it's always like this little bookmark or a doorstop, you know, you just can't, you can't open the door. You can't go where you're trying to go. All right, here's one. You don't get medical checkups and you don't get your teeth cleaned regularly. That's a big one. I'm always trying to encourage people with CPTSD that that's a concrete form of self-neglect that can cause real problems. And um, then I wanna talk about this last category and I was trying to think of what to call it, but let's call it suppression of joy and growth. 
Um, so here's one that I relate to, and it's your living space has nothing beautiful. There's not, there's no art, or you have a yard or a porch or a balcony, but you don't have any plants on it. All right. Having a beautiful space is a way that you commit to your life, that you commit to having the life that you love. Now, if you really don't care about art or flowers or anything like that, okay, fine. I bet you have your equivalent thing about making your space nice and treating yourself like a proper adult who has proper things, proper furniture, proper silverware, <laughs> proper bras and underwear, right? <laughs> but to allow yourself to really blossom as a person who has what you need. All right. Here's one. You'd like to have a pet, but you don't get a pet. And I think I'm throwing that in because I really want a dog and I'm not getting a dog right now because I travel so much to do live shows and I haven't figured that out yet, but I really want a pet. And um, I think that having a dog again in my life is going to be a really happy thing. And I'm having to like delay happiness on that, but it's worth it because I get to travel and see you. <laughs> Here's one. You feel vaguely resentful around people who are happy or accomplished. Now, this is something we talked about in a video not that long ago. What is it about people who aren't screwed up or traumatized that makes us so uncomfortable around them? And as one person pointed out, and I think this is right, it's shame, right? Shame comes up around people who are okay. And we begin to compare ourselves to them, even though they're probably not comparing themselves to us. We're doing it for them and then pulling away from them. So we end up with like envy, resentment, avoidance around people who have fun um, opportunities, you know, joy to bring into our lives, great people. And that's one of my regrets is some of the wonderful people I've crossed paths with who I allowed that friendship to just slip away because I just, I don't know, I felt resentful or envious of how successful they were or how beautiful or how kind. So do you recognize any of these forms of self-suppression in yourself? The solution is to begin expressing who you are. And I understand quite well how that can be tricky when you grew up with abuse and neglect, because you might have a prickly side, you might have a difficult side, you might have a little bit of issue with emotional dysregulation where you lash out when stuff gets stressful, people trigger you. So when people say, hey, just be your true self, I know, I know as few others can understand, you know, how risky it is to just be yourself. So it's a becoming yourself is a two part thing. It's not just letting your true personality and thoughts hang out. It's not just that your true self also has all kinds of values, um, consideration, restraint at times, um, thoughtfulness, strategic behavior, like that's part of you too. And they need to come up together where you think to yourself, do I need to mouth off to this other driver right now? Is that necessary to be my real self? Or is my real self also somebody who can be patient about somebody who cut me off in traffic, who can hold my tongue, who can go use my tools to go release that stress before it gets all stuck inside me and turns me into an angry serrated knife, as my meditation teacher used to call me, a serrated knife. So I don't wanna be that person. My real self is not that. That layer, that angry layer, was a byproduct of my trauma. And I'm healing that, and you can too. So the solution isn't just running around screaming at people about whatever we feel or things like that. The solution is self-awareness, right? The solution is self-expression, balanced, self-awareness, self-expression. So people with CPTSD, when you ask what they really want in life, quite often they can't tell you. The question brings up grief and anxiety, like, I don't know, I'll never get it anyway. 
but it's good to know what you want. It's good to write it down. And discovering that can be a process. A lot of people who come into my programs, I go write down your wildest dreams of what you really want. And a lot of people will whisper to each other, is it just me? I, like, I can't, I can't even articulate it. Give it a little time. <laughs> Start writing down what you know about it. Let it be vague at first. You express yourself with who you are, how you present yourself, what you say, and what you become in life. And that's what healing looks like. And as you heal, you do that a little bit. And I trust me, you're going to just get all effed up in your head. Like, why did I say that? I shouldn't have. I just blurted out something. Now everybody thinks I'm an idiot. This is part of healing. This is part of it. So gradual, incremental experimentation, it always involves some fumbling, all right? It always involves some failure. And if you've lived your life in fear of criticism, because that's how it all started for you, you're going to need support. You're going to need perseverance to just keep going one foot in front of the other, becoming your real self, expressing yourself. So this is what you would have been doing as a child if you ha would have been free to be yourself and supported to learn how to be yourself. Now, maybe there's a little developmental delay there, but now is your time. You're gonna need tools. You're gonna need like, you know, books, videos, courses to guide you. You're using a tool right now watching this video, so that's great. You'll need support from actual people, maybe friends you already know or friends that you meet because they're in little pockets where people work on themselves, maybe in a 12-step fellowship or a support group, um, maybe in my membership program. If you're already in that or you're interested in it, check it out. If you're a self-suppressor, it's like I'm telling you something horrible. You're gonna have to deal with people. <laughs> That's impossible, you're thinking. But it's actually quite nice if you can go slowly. And it's necessary because if you're left to your own device, honestly, you're very likely to fall back into self-suppression, justifying that suppression and playing small. So if you want a really gentle way to get started to try to handle the feelings that come up when you expand your comfort zone like that. You can try my daily practice techniques. That's why I'm always talking about them. They really help with that. It's kind of like opening a window on a room that's gotten stuffy and steamy with cruddy thoughts and feelings. It lets fresh air in. It lets the bad stuff out. And sometimes it makes a space for a happy thought to come in that leads you to your next step. You have a little, an idea, you know, an inspiration. I know, I know what I can do next. I know you know this, but I want to make sure you hear it all the way, like really hear it. The abuse and neglect that happened to you when you were a kid was not your fault. And it's easy to know that, but not to believe it. And I have some information here for you that I think will help you let that truth in. It's about the signs that a person has childhood PTSD. And if you're not sure you have it, I can tell you what it looks like. I think on some level, this might come as a relief for you because if you've got even some of the 12 signs of complex PTSD that I'm going to talk about in this video, it means you've got symptoms that follow a known pattern and that are a normal response of a normal person to abnormal conditions during childhood. Now, there are symptoms that a lot of people don't realize are connected with early trauma, and you might know some of them, but a lot of the signs I'm going to go over in this video just might surprise you, and they might explain a lot about why you struggle. As I list these, you can write them down if you want, but to keep it simple, I can send you a self-assessment quiz where you can review the signs I'm about to describe to you, and I'll tell you how to get a hold of that at the end of the video. But first, I'll just tell you what they are. All right, number one, do you struggle with attention, memory, or focus? 
And yes, these are symptoms that affect a lot of people, but they're also common adult symptoms of complex PTSD. And by the way, complex PTSD is the kind that comes from chronic exposure to intense stress over time. And this could happen at any age, but most cases begin in childhood. Things like violence in the home, abandonment, growing up with an addicted or mentally ill parent, or a parent who's died or is in prison, or who just left and never came back. You'll hear me talk about childhood PTSD, which is just a common term for complex PTSD that starts in childhood. Now, when these traumas and neglect start happening in childhood, you'll often see these problems with learning and focus and sitting still, not just in kids, but in adults. And if this is you, you probably had a lot of shame dumped on you about not paying attention in school, as if that were a choice you made. You just didn't want to. And I wouldn't be surprised if you carried that shame into adulthood and, and got into a lot of shame now about struggling with these very same learning and focus problems. And I just want to point out to you that when you got through trauma as a kid, it not only affects you emotionally, it can cause brain changes. Learning and memory and focus problems are normal when a person has gone through trauma. So I'll explain why in a moment. Okay, number two, sign of CPTSD. Do you tend to space out or feel physically numb when you try to make big decisions or talk about your feelings? This is a sign of what's called dysregulation. There is a distinct thing called emotional dysregulation, which we'll get to, but there's also brain and nervous system dysregulation, and it can develop in response to trauma, possibly as an injury to normal functioning, an injury, by the way, that can be healed. And possibly it develops as a protective mechanism to guard a kid's developing brain from the potential harm of serious trauma. A child learns to just, you know, shut down and close off awareness of something too awful to face. And this is a brilliant survival strategy for a kid. It's good that you did it, but it's totally a problem when it lasts into adulthood. As you know, when you're in a crisis or needing to make an important decision, the last thing you need is to lose your power of reasoning. But that's exactly what can happen when we're dysregulated. And researchers can see this in MRIs and brain scans. When you're stressed, brain waves and vital signs go out of their normal synchronous pattern and they get out of sync, they get discordant. It's sort of a brainwave equivalent of a dog walking on a piano. <laughs> the keys are clanging and no longer does it sound like music. That's kind of what it feels like to be dysregulated, right? numb, discombobulated, flustered, irritated. Do you have that sometimes when something triggers you? Okay, along similar lines, here's the third sign. Do you have trouble regulating intense emotions, having outbursts of sadness or anger when it doesn't seem appropriate? This is what it feels like to be emotionally dysregulated. And again, CPTSD isn't the only reason people get emotionally dysregulated, but it's very, very common. Now, with emotional dysregulation, you're going along and something triggers you. Usually it's something along the lines of criticism, rejection, being judged, left out, pressured, pressured to hurry, or in some way stressed. And for people who were traumatized as kids, when they're stressed as adults, 
There's a very common response in the right front cortex where emotions are activated. And instead of the left front cortex being activated alongside it, this is where reasoning is supposed to kick in and help mitigate that emotional reaction. That left side is suppressed under stress. So reasoning goes down and emotions go up and you get an overreaction. It can happen with anger. It can happen with excitement. It can happen with intense experiences like falling in love. The emotions are going up and up and unchecked and it can be hard to bring them back down. That's a childhood PTSD thing. And sometimes after a big upset, it's hard to feel anything. So emotions spike and then they can flatline and you feel like the world's coming to an end and then you feel nothing. And of course, for the people who love you, this can feel totally unreasonable and crazy making and lead to arguments. So that leads me to the fourth sign. Do you have more than your share of conflict with family, friends, coworkers, partner? This is how emotional dysregulation plays out, aggravating ordinary conflicts. And of course, when you grew up without proper role models for guidance, not loved properly, not parented properly, either left to fend for yourself or viciously punished for mistakes, ordinary conflicts can get blown way out of proportion. And it's a big reason why relationships with traumatized people so often get damaged and fall apart. It makes for a very painful way of life, full of loss and hurt. And many of us end up afraid to get involved with people at all. We're so afraid we're going to screw it up. And that leads into the fifth sign that you might have CPTSD, that vulnerability around people. And you can ask yourself, do you find yourself avoiding social engagements because being around people is just too triggering? They are, aren't they? So maybe you consciously avoid making friends or joining groups or dating, or maybe you do these things, but you hold yourself at arm's length. And either way, this is why so many people with CPTSD feel alone and isolated, even when they're with people, even when people are trying to help them or love them. And why a lot of traumatized people give up on socializing and opt to live in isolation as the only way to get peace. Now this happens, but it's not the only way to deal with being triggered. In my courses, I teach people how to strengthen their ability to calm triggers around people and allow their lives to heal and grow. If that's something you feel like you need, I'll, I always put the links to those down below in the description section. You can check them out when we're done if you're interested. But yes, the stress around connection to people either getting closer or, or the fear of breaking up, splitting up with them can be so menacing for people with CPTSD that you can go to the completely opposite direction from avoidance. And this is the sixth sign that you might be affected. And you can ask yourself, does the fear of abandonment or of being alone cause you to stay in negative relationships? Oh my gosh, this is such a huge way that so many of us have thrown away years of our lives, staying way past when we wanted to leave, but the thought of leaving was unbearable. The depression and panic that tend to rise up around endings is so harsh, we'll do practically anything to avoid it. And this is complicated by the fact that we so often choose impossible people to be our friends and partners. And this is the seventh sign. Do you find yourself attracted to unavailable or destructive or abusive people? 
This is not happening because you're a bad person, but because your ability to discern who is an appropriate and trustworthy person is diminished by dysregulation. Getting close to people causes stress. Stress causes dysregulation. And dysregulation causes that poor judgment that then goes on to attach you to people who don't care about you or who can't love you. And this is how trauma so easily gets passed through the generations. You might be intensely hard on yourself when you look back and you see the choices that you've made, but it's a stretch to say even that this was a choice because CPTSD can trigger such unconsciousness and dysregulated thinking that it's very normal to not realize anything's wrong until well into a relationship. Now remember, you can learn to heal this. You can learn workarounds to slow that process down and instead develop healthy boundaries. We normally have trouble setting boundaries and saying no, but we can learn to heal this. So the eighth sign, have you suffered with depression, anxiety, or other mental health problems? This is well known to be associated with trauma and it's connected to the ninth sign. Do you smoke cigarettes? or use food or alcohol or drugs in an addictive way. Because in the short term, these are regulating and they help soothe that intense emotional dysregulation for a short time, even though they lead eventually to more dysregulation, sometimes after just a few minutes. The 10th sign is, are you overweight or do you struggle with overeating? Early trauma can alter your metabolism and the hormones that govern appetite and craving, which could explain a lot about why so many of us have trouble around certain foods or with stopping eating even when we've had enough. So along similar lines, the 11th sign that you might have CPTSD is, do you have unexplained health problems that seem to have no clear cause? I teach you more about this in my course, Healing Childhood PTSD, but early trauma, is closely correlated with a higher incidence of everything from migraines and immune problems to diabetes, heart disease, cancer. If your physical health is affected today because of your trauma reactions, that's just one more reason to take your healing seriously and to take smart, self-loving action. Now, the signs I've listed so far are all about hard things, and some of them may have helped you feel motivated to start learning about CPTSD and how you can start healing your symptoms. The biggest reason I see among my students for wanting to heal, and this was also what motivated me to heal so many years ago, was this, the 12th sign. And that's, do you feel that you are unexplainably separate from other people and groups? And that's just it, we feel separate disconnected. We feel alone. And I just want to give you hope and let you know that there's a reason you feel this way. It's normal for people who were abused and neglected as kids, and it's not your fault. And while CPTSD is not technically curable, you can learn to heal the symptoms. Now, I promised you, you wouldn't have to take notes on all this because it's all written down in a self-assessment quiz that I've linked right down in the description section on the free tools page of my website. Secretly, I'm socially awkward. I have ways of acting normal and smooth, but the lack of structure and role modeling that defined my childhood, I had to teach myself how to connect with people and things didn't really snap together until I learned how to heal my childhood PTSD symptoms. When I was learning about CPTSD, 
Nobody talked about social awkwardness, but it's totally a trauma thing. And I learned that when I put out my four part series on isolation and loneliness a few years ago. And I was watching these videos again the other day and I was thinking, I have got to bring these back. They are just as relevant today as they were back when I made them. And especially today, I wanna to share with you this video I made on complex PTSD and social awkwardness. Have you ever been to a hotel where there's a person who's there to carry your bags for you. And even though you didn't ask, they carry your bags to the room and it's totally awkward. And you think I'm supposed to give them a tip, right? I've seen this on TV, but you don't have cash. And they're just standing there and you think, what do I do? What do I say? And instead of saying anything, you just say, okay, bye. And then you shut the door and then you feel like a real a-hole. Or maybe you're the person who carried the bags and you're not really supposed to ask for the tip and there's some right amount of time to just stand there waiting for it. But if you have childhood PTSD and you're vulnerable to feeling shame and you're getting all dysregulated over this, just like the person who's supposed to give you the tip and then you get the door shut in your face. Well, now we've got two people on either side of the door just flooding with shame and they're not able to say a word. And this kind of awkwardness happens all the time for those of us who experience trauma in childhood. The shame we feel in awkward social situations makes us collapse inside and we wanna flee the interaction and isolate. This is my third video in the isolation series and it's all about social awkwardness and how to navigate it so we can more gracefully handle awkward situations and avoid the need to isolate. Now, social awkwardness doesn't always go hand in hand with childhood PTSD and complex PTSD, but early trauma put such a huge dent in our confidence and family homes where there was abuse or neglect or drugs or grinding poverty are not usually the greatest places to learn how to handle yourself with other people. So a lot of us end up having no idea how to act in challenging situations. Things like when you're in a formal environment or you've been accused of something you didn't do or you happen to be in a room with someone famous or you win a prize or you lose a prize and you're expected to congratulate the winner or when a family member says something really offensive. This stuff can be so fraught for us with childhood PTSD. And so many of us never get taught how you do this? How do you deal with awkward situations gracefully without shutting down or making a scene? And so this is one more reason why people with early trauma have such a tendency to isolate, to withdraw from connection and relationships with people, even though they long for those things. It's one of the worst consequences of childhood PTSD. And if you don't turn it around, you could end up going deeper into isolation. And whatever dodgy personality traits you may already have, we all have some, right? Isolation is only gonna make them worse. Now remember, isolation is not the same as periods of constructive solitude. Solitude can be calming, but ongoing isolation makes us deteriorate. We get weird. It's really important to break this cycle and learn again how to reconnect. Now, personally, I grew up with educated parents who themselves had been raised by polite and conscientious parents, and I learned to say please and thank you and all that. But because there was alcoholism, there was not a lot of attention or supervision given to us kids, and we were inconsistently disciplined, and we were rarely called out for rude and selfish behavior. 
I also was missing a lot of the just basic skills of social behavior. I was 12 years old when I taught myself to use a knife and a fork together. Until that time, I had a more intuitive way of eating, if you could call it, that, that usually involved scooping up food with a spoon or a fork in my hand and then tipping my head back while I chewed it so it didn't fall out while I chewed with my mouth open. And all the siblings did it, and it was all we knew. No one minded. And it was only when I started to feel shame about my manners when I was at other people's homes that I tried to figure out how you're supposed to do this. Being neglected can bring out some ugly traits. The seriousness of drug and alcohol problems in the family kept us all tangled up in chaos. And in that situation, a kid kind of has to be selfish to get by. If you're not getting attention and praise sometimes, you might start to show off to other people. I know I did. If you don't get treated fairly, you might become kind of pushy to get what you want or arrogant or sharp-tongued or dismissive of others. And if you're not cared for when you're sick or your feelings are hurt, you might start talking about these hardships to anyone who will listen, like too much. So how can we teach ourselves to be more socially graceful? I used to read etiquette books, but if they're written by people from normal families, they kind of skip over that very elementary part that I actually need to, of just like, how do you even begin? My parents were pretty decent people, then despite the chaos, but I got very little guidance on how to be. And so starting in my teens, I sought out and connected with socially graceful people. And I wasn't usually courageous enough to ask for help, but I watched them. I, I listened to what to say. When is it appropriate to speak up? When should I pull back? And what I've learned has helped me to be less isolated and helped me not be limited to the company of only other screwed up people and more flexible to hang out with just about any kind of person. And that's what social grace is. It's having the choice to connect with a wide variety of people wherever you care to be. And remember, social grace doesn't mean you tolerate abuse and um, that you stand there just like helplessly when you're in danger. These guiding principles will help you to create a feeling of ease and welcome with people around you when you want that with them. And that will allow your connection to blossom. I'm going to give you some guiding principles that will help you create a feeling of ease and welcome with the people around you and to create the opportunity for more connection to blossom. And here they are. First, be gentle with other people. Remember that they may be as sensitive as you are. Second, be trustworthy. People need to feel safe to grow closer to you or anyone. And third, be humble. Help others feel your respect for them by keeping at least half the focus on what they're saying and how they're feeling. Really paying attention to others not only makes them feel heard, but it will help you learn to genuinely appreciate who they are. When you're in a social situation, even as the many colors of your personality start to shine much brighter, the art of being gentle, trustworthy, and humble will create a positive environment for connection to grow. You will find doors opening for you socially all around you, and into your life will come other socially graceful people whose company will feel so much kinder and easier and more supportive than anything you ever had. I speak from experience when I tell you how easy it is when you grew up with trauma to go unconscious in relationships. Even though you feel like things are fine and you tell everyone things are fine, a big part of you has left the building. There are a number of reasons this happens, but it's usually a mix of abuse or neglect from the past where you had to learn to deny that you're unsafe and a fear of facing reality in present time because you're terrified of how you will ever live if the relationship that you're in ends.
My letter today is from a man I'll call Chris, and he writes, Good morning, Anna. I was with my soon-to-be ex-wife for five years, married for three. Okay, I've got my fairy pencil. I'm going to circle some things I want to come back to on a second reading, but let's read through Chris's letter and see what's going on. He says, All in all, I would say we had a great relationship. We communicated well with each other, and outside of normal marriage issues that all couples have, our relationship was fulfilling and happy. However, I now find myself in the position of having been served with divorce papers by her and left feeling blindsided and abandoned. I'm sorry. Okay. For some background about my wife, she is loving, kind, people-pleasing, and generally a sweet person, but has deep, some deep insecurities. The biggest thing is feeling unworthy of love, a fear of abandonment, and that she is unlikable. She grew up in an unstable environment. Her mom was pregnant with her at 18 to a man almost 10 years older than her. This man was an alcoholic, emotionally abusive, and just not a good father. She told me many times how whenever she would have to spend time with him, he just would be drunk and not present with her. Her mom I would describe as anxiously attached. If her mom feels like you are invalidating her, you risk her exploding until she calms down. I knew all this going in, and in the beginning I saw my wife's insecurities come out many times, but I did my best to reassure her, to be present with her, and help her through her struggles, and I was proud of the progress I believe she made over the years. I'd like to add that the last year of our marriage was fairly rough. I struggled with panic attacks, and it was taxing for my spouse. She is a therapist, and I could see she was getting sympathy fatigue. I eventually got on medication and saw a therapist and got to a much better place, but I think some damage was done. I later found my wife was feeling very resentful, but never brought this up to me. She felt guilty for feeling that way while I was struggling, so she kept those feelings in and did not communicate it to me, which I would have gladly talked to her about. And, under, and I would have understood. I know she's human and I completely understand why she felt that way. While I don't think this is the sole reason for her actions, I believe it had a sizable impact on her choice in the following months. Because of this last year, we didn't do a lot outside of the house, definitely in the routine and rut that can happen in a marriage sometimes. Wake up, go to work, come home, hang around. I wasn't too worried about this. I've been married before her, and I know that, that it's a normal part of marriage. My wife, however, has not been in relationships longer than roughly one to two years, so I think she took this more as something very seriously wrong. Anyway, she was looking to go out and make more friends, which I fully supported. She's much more extroverted than I am, and while I still enjoy doing things together with her, I knew it would be good for her to have her own group of friends that she can bond with and have fulfillment with alongside our relationship. Well, with that in mind, a few months ago, she made friends with a social group, and in particular one man there, and she did a complete 180. She suddenly was being secretive, spending all her time around him, and ultimately began having an affair. She said she loved him and that he loved her, that she wasn't attracted to me anymore, and that she wanted to be divorced, all within one month of meeting him. And this man is cheating on his girlfriend in talking to her, does drugs, is manipulative, and in my opinion, just looking to keep her close as an option, but never his true choice. 
I tried so hard to work with her, but she was terrified of cutting contact with him and could never give a logical reason for why she was acting how she was. In one of our conversations together, she told me that she had felt unhappy for about a year. The normal routine of married life was getting to her, and she longed for the excitement of what people like this man or previous relationships brought her. I had no idea she felt this way. She never brought that up to me, and she was still showing me love and affection up until she met him. She compared him to a previous relationship she had and noticed that they had similar traits, manipulative, toxic, ulterior motives, etc., not unlike her own father and said to me that in a weird way, this was more comforting for her than our relationship, which was stable and healthy. Anytime I tried to explain I had no ulterior motives that I just loved her for her, it fell on deaf ears. This all happened over the course of three months until she got an apartment and moved out in month four, and I've not heard or made contact with her in almost two months, coming on month five. I'm heartbroken and devastated. I had no idea my partner felt this way, and I'm struggling to understand how we got here. I haven't been able to rationalize how my wife was able to jump onto someone new that quickly and abandon our marriage so fast. Not to mention for a man who's manipulative, narcissistic, and actively cheating on his own partner and showing my wife this affection. In my own journey of processing all this, I came across terms like quiet, borderline personality disorder, CPTSD, etc. In particular, CPTSD consistently seems to resonate, and I'm curious in your experience, does this sound similar? I appreciate any insight you can give in helping me better understand this type of trauma and making sense of this whirlwind of a time I've had. While I don't think any of this is an excuse for her behavior, I know what happened to her as a child is not her fault, and it breaks my heart to see her feel so unlovable and unworthy of kindness when I think she's worthy of love just the way she is. It's a sign from Chris. Okay, Chris, I can help you. This is a very rough situation. I'm so sorry you're going through it. Ah, soon to be ex-wife, you're getting divorced. You were married for three, together for five. And you would say, all in all, you had a great relationship. So Chris, I'm just going to have to say, obviously, you did not have a great relationship. You didn't even know that she was miserable for a year. You were having panic attacks. You didn't mention why. You gave me a huge amount of detail about her and her life and how you researched it and stuff, but there's almost nothing about you and who you are in this and what actually happened. And um, I guess I'm not totally buying the narrative here that you're just like this nice guy who's just always there for her. And, and you know, you, this is a healthy relationship, so why is she going off to this terrible guy? I think there's a lot of reasons that it could be, and she's not here to explain to us. So, you know, I can throw a few guesses out there, and I'm sure the people in the comments will have a lot to say. They'll say she's a narcissist, she's a sociopath, she's probably on drugs, she's probably done this before. People will say things, but I'm going to try to be careful about this and just say, my friend, I think you have codependence really bad. And I just automatically feel that it's codependent when somebody writes in and they're being absolutely treated like crap by a partner, which you are, Chris. You're being treated very badly. She won't even talk to you. And it happens suddenly, and you're left baffled with kind of a bunch of psychobabble about why it's happening. 
And um, it is devastating. But what I hear you is you're sort of like doing a, well, there's a word spiritual bypass when people use spiritual rationales to go, actually, everything's great. I think you're using psychological bypass to go, I'm just this great guy, you know, and this other guy's just this bad guy. And she's doing this thing and it must be her parents. And I, I've done that and a whole bunch of people, I get a lot of letters of this nature too. And, um, and I wanted to share it with everybody because right now there's probably hundreds of people who are going to see this video. They're going to hear your situation and they're going to recognize themselves in it. And I'm just saying, you know, categorically, if your relationship has fallen apart and all you're doing is trying to show up and be the nice person, I'm so nice, but I'm just sitting here and I understand your trauma. You're in denial. It's not just their trauma. It's a decision they made because they were unhappy. And what you're describing, okay, so she probably, it sounds like she has childhood trauma. We all do. That does not mean we're going to treat people like this and just run off. Some of us will, or maybe there's a time when we will. And I'll say, you didn't say how old you are, but in, in the event that you're very young, that you're in your 20s, I would say the possible causes of this could be opened up a little bit more to just like an immature decision to get married when she wasn't ready. Your hypothesis that it's trauma could be true in that she's going for some guy. I don't know, this thing where she tells you, well, I'm going for him because he's dangerous and he reminds me of so-and-so. That just sounds like a thing you tell a therapist. It doesn't sound real. It sounds like she was going dead inside and this relationship makes her feel alive. Whatever it is, even if it's horrible. And I suspect it will crash and burn. Like relationships that start this way don't tend to be good. She sounds like she entered into a marriage without really knowing herself. But the person who wrote to me is you, Chris. And I think you went into a marriage without really knowing yourself and um, without really knowing her. And what can we do? <laughs> People are a mystery, aren't they? People are a mystery. But can I just say, after what she's done, don't take her back, Chris. Don't angle of uh, trying to rationalize this. I know it's hard but I think it's important to let it in how badly she's treating you, how disrespectfully, how abruptly, how unfair it is to make a vow to somebody to stay with them and then just boom, just leave. I also want to ask you, you know, you didn't tell me, which is telling in itself that you didn't say, why were you having this terrible year of panic attacks and depression? Could it be that part of you did understand that the marriage was on thin ice? and you couldn't really deal with it. I mean, that's a lot why people do have panic attacks and depression. That would certainly be believable. Maybe there was some other thing, but you didn't mention it. Your theory anyway, I don't know if it's true, but like after one year of you not being that much fun, she just like abandoned you, which is not what a marriage is. <laughs> Everybody's gonna be not so fun sometimes in a marriage. That would be normal. Um, so was it something else? Was there some kind of icy silence, some inability to communicate real stuff, a freezeroo going on? I don't know. The fact that you couldn't explain it and that you positioned it's just like you're just a nice guy. Yeah, you had some panic attacks and couldn't really function for a year and you guys never went out of the house, but everything's great. So I want to recommend a book. I, I like to recommend this to men. I haven't done it in a while, but the book No More Mr. Nice Guy by Robert Glover. It's a really important book and it's for men like you who uh, you know you lose love you can't attract like really great people to be with 
And a problem that may be going on is that because of the way that you were raised or who knows why, there may not even be a past reason, you think you have to dance around and be nice. I'm so nice, I help you with everything. You ran out and cheated with this guy, you must be in a lot of pain, it's trauma. Let me help you with that, I'll, I'll help work it out for you. That's a nice guy in the bad sense of the word. And I'll be honest with you, when a guy is using that kind of energy to hold a relationship together, it's not very attractive. It's just not very attractive. And I don't, you know, I really don't want to like put a huge brush on everything. Like there's a, a time and a place to get in there and do something heroic to save a marriage. I know that. And I appreciate all the people who give it a try. But at a certain point with what's happening, I just think that you're not talking rationally about what's actually happening. You're, you're, you're really like sitting up on a perch where like, <laughs> like a little bird going peep, 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 everything's great. It's not great, this is terrible. And it's gonna be a big hassle to undo. And I, it sounds like you don't have children, so that helps. It's now officially none of your business who this guy is or whether she's with him or not. Isn't that weird? I know it's weird, it's pretty hard to make that that separation from somebody where all of your business was common business for the longest time and now she's just gone off and she's put up a boundary and she's been like this is my life i'm doing what i want and so this thing where he's narcissistic and he's abusive i just think that it's not in your best interest to put your energy and attention on that or even tell people about it i know that a lot of people do believe i think there it is healthy to talk to somebody about this but and it's fair enough that you told me, so I'm not on your case about that. But just to get better, like, you need support. It's you who has trauma now. I don't know what you had in the past, but you've got trauma now. And that's the trouble with relationships with people with CPTSD who aren't healed yet, is that we hurt other people, we give them trauma. And so that's what happened to you. And so I just really wanna encourage you because the sooner you can support yourself in getting through this and <laughs> learning to, um, check in with your mind, your awareness of reality, whether for you that's a therapist or a 12-step group, which you would certainly qualify for. In our membership program, you could come in and talk with other people. For, for you, other men, may I say strongly, do this mutual support with men, with, with people who there's no potential for attraction between you. That's where things can really get messy. <laughs> and, um, and start being honest with another person and allow them to ask you questions. Check out that book. And um, I happen to know that uh, Robert Glover has, I haven't met him yet. I'm gonna reach out to him because I just feel like we should collaborate. But um, he does a bunch of men's retreats and books and workshops online. And he has got a lot of stuff for men to sort of take back their freedom in their life. And a little bit of it, I'm like, ooh, this is not meant for my female eyes. I don't wanna know. <laughs> so to each his own. And, but check it out if you, if you, if you wanna just get a new perspective. There were just so many tidbits in that book and it was recommended to me once and I just couldn't put it down. And I recognized so many men I had known in my life and the phenomenon that he was talking about would definitely been, have been a relationship ruiner for me. It's the guy who gets friend zoned. It's, that's part of what it is. It's the guy who ends up spending his weekends being helpful, helping you move, helping you do this and that, but not really having a life for himself. So don't be that guy, Chris, don't be that guy. You be your wild, beautiful, loved and loving self. I encourage you to move on. This relationship 
even if even if it is CPTSD, the fact that she's just in the middle of her acting out right now, she's got a long road ahead of her. First of all, a marriage is a marriage, and so it's always worth a try, unless there's abuse. But which is a little borderline here. But I believe that if you're if a person has a partner who has CPTSD and they're having these like explosive temper events, or they're too sad to carry on, or they're putting too much pressure on you. That would be reason enough to leave. If you choose to stay, I think the criteria is, are they working on themselves? I would not buy them books. Don't try to get them to watch my videos. I always tell people like if you, they go, how do I get my mom to watch this? And I'd be like, send her one video, but chances are 99%. She's not even going to look at it or she will. And she'll criticize it and you. And, and then what was the point? The biggest thing that you can do to influence other people positively is to get well is to get well and be happy. And I know you're not looking for revenge, but the best revenge is success, to become healthy and whole and to have a happy relationship in your life. Because I can tell you want one and you're worthy of it. But there's this dancing around you're doing, trying to people please and try to get your happiness and security out of somebody else. And sometimes when I talk about codependency, I talk about it in these terms that in a way it's parasitic. I know that's harsh. But it's helpful, I think, to, to think about how devastating it is to get stuck in codependency, which is you take your life force and instead of using it to live your life and have your adventures, you put it all in somebody else and then you try to extract life back out of them. I'll be happy if they will use all this love and energy I give them to change in a way that works for me. It's just not a good model is it? And the person ends up resenting you. It tends to interfere with their ability to grow and become the better version of themselves that they would like to be. And so I really believe that there's a way that you can strongly love a spouse and be with them while allowing them to determine the course of their life and just letting yourself watch how they behave. Now, from where I sit, I'm 10 years married now <laughs> with my husband for 15. So I just remember, you know, the early years were pretty intense. By the time we'd been together as long as you were with your wife, we were just getting married and that didn't fix everything. And I don't think it does for everybody. There's, for me, there was a lot of trauma to come up around being married. There's a lot of, you know, no matter how much we think we escape the cultural idea that, oh, you know, I'm drowning out here in the ocean. If I could just get to the island of marriage, my problems will be solved. And a couple of them are solved. <laughs> like, like somebody lives with you and they're with you and you, you, it's a little cheaper to live. There's a couple things and you get some social status out of it, sort of. But it really doesn't fix the, the, the wound of, of early trauma in your life. And so the, the, the death of that hope that if you could just get somebody who would marry you, that would go away. You know, it's like, oh, wah, wah. It's not like that. So there's a lot to go through and it comes up. So she's probably going through that. But nonetheless, how she's dealt with that really sucks. You know, it just, it's, it's been very um, dishonest and inconsiderate to you and not, uh, yeah. I just think there's this idea that I hold in my heart that I believe pe people who are married should try to stick it out, but some marriages were not really marriages. And one thing that makes them not really marriages, they're more like friendships, you know, with sex and living together and maybe a mingled bank account, but they're not really a marriage because it, that would be the case if one person was too emotionally mature to really make that level of commitment. That doesn't mean that you just give her 10 years and wait for her. Don't do that. 
if she really is sorry what she did and goes and works on her trauma, you know, maybe talk to her about it if you're still open to it. But for right now, like, I would say just like, live like, live like a very happy, fun monk for a year. Just clear that romantic clutter out of your life. Get the focus back on you. I just say a monk, like no dating, just for a little while so you can heal and recover and not jump in and bring all that crazy into the next relationship. And have fun, have joy. Uh, start practicing telling the truth. Be in environments where other people tell the truth. And see if your red flag detector and your level of perception can switch back on. You're gonna need that. Thank you so much for listening. If you love my content, think about joining my membership program. You can find out more information about that and all my courses and coaching programs in the episode description below or on my website, crappychildhoodfairy.com. If you're going through a hard time and you need online therapy, I encourage you to check out BetterHelp. They're easy and affordable and they can connect you with someone you choose within a few days. And if you use this special URL, you not only help this channel, but you get 10% off your first month of therapy. So go to betterhelp.com slash ccf, as in crappy childhood fairy. That's betterhelp.com slash ccf. And remember, healing is possible. People with childhood PTSD can have a wonderful life. Sometimes we just need a few workarounds. I'll see you next time.